we can understand our Dharma practice as a path of opening. You know, it's opening to our bodies, where we go from a sense of the solidity of the body to awareness of particular sensations, to the feeling of the body as a fluid energy field. We can understand our practice as an opening of our sense doors, you know, a refinement of our perceptions. And you've probably noticed over these weeks, we become more aware of nuances of sight and sound, smell and taste. <clears throat> our perceptions are getting more refined. We uncover a depth and a range of <clears throat> different emotions, you know, both pleasant and unpleasant. Feelings of love, of gratitude, of joy, of anger, of restlessness, of peace. And so we just begin exploring in a deeper and more intimate way the range of our emotions. <clears throat> There's an opening of our minds through the release of memories and images. Common experience in practice, and one which I've had, I'm sure you've had also, where we can be sitting and memories come of things we haven't thought of maybe in 20 years. And all of a sudden it you know, pops into the mind. So there's a real opening on that level also. There's an opening to silence and different levels of silence. Munindraji, my first teacher, once gave a three-hour talk on 21 kinds of silence. <laughs> By the end of it, <laughs> I was ready for some silence. <laughs> so our practice is not a reaching out for these experiences, but rather a settling back just into the natural unfolding of this whole process, into the simple knowing of what's arising. And as we do this, we understand with increasing clarity the essential emptiness, insubstantial nature of all arising phenomena. You know, a phrase which encapsulates this, which Munindraji used often, it's just empty phenomena rolling on, whatever it is in the body, in the mind, in the emotions and thoughts, it's just empty phenomena rolling on. <clears throat> but in this process, there's one very strongly conditioned tendency of mind, <clears throat> and one that we very often identify with, <clears throat> that causes us to freeze this experience of the unfolding process. We freeze our experience in this flow of change. It's kind of like you know, a deer being frozen in the headlight. And the tendency, the conditioned tendency in mind that has this effect is the rather uh, strongly conditioned mind state and emotion of fear. So tonight I'd like to talk about fear, both how it is conditioned in the mind and how we can transform the experience of it into freedom. Now, as we're journeying on this path of opening, as I'm sure you've noticed, we've come, we come to some edges or boundaries. And everything within that frame we're comfortable with, we can accept, we can be with, it's familiar. But then we get to the edge or the boundary of that whatever it may be. And it's at these edges that fears, whether large ones or small ones, begin to emerge. We begin to experience fear when we're at the edge of our comfort zone. It might be fear of pain. It might be fear of experiencing different emotions different psychological states. It might be fear of change, you know, fear of the unknown, fear of death. 
The problem is that all of these experiences, all of these edges, are actually part of life itself. They're part of our experience. So the fears that are arising are fears of what is true in our experience in those moments. And it's for this reason we need to learn how to work with the fear so that instead of contracting back into our comfort zone, we can actually relax at the boundary, relax at the edge, and open further. So first we need to recognize what it is that we're afraid of. What limits us? And then to explore the possibilities of going beyond those limits. Now when I imagine the mind of the Buddha, and at this point it is just an imagination, but when I think of it, it's like, you know, and see our own path. Yeah, we come to an edge, come to an edge, come to an edge. Imagine the mind of a Buddha without edges, without any boundaries at all. And a mind without boundaries is a mind without fear. And it's an inspiring, for me, an inspiring way of holding what we're doing in the practice. You know, we're coming to that place of freedom. So first we need to look at what it is we're afraid of and then to look at the nature of fear itself. What is its nature as a mind state, and how can we work with it? So what are some of the things that limit us? One of the most obvious, and one which we work with a lot, is the fear of physical pain, or even physical discomfort. We are so conditioned to want to avoid unpleasant experience. This goes so deep. Now, there's a natural inclination to go for the pleasant and to avoid the unpleasant. We can notice this in so many ways during the day. You know, just noticing the small shifts of posture to ease some discomfort. There's kind of a Dharma saying that movement masks dukkha. You know, our movement masks the truth of dukkha because we don't want to experience the discomfort or the pain, so we move to alleviate it. Throughout the day, just in the course of you know, our daily activities, it would be interesting to see what motivates us as we engage in these activities. You know, we sit. Why not sit with the resolution that the Bodhisattva made under the Bodhi tree? I'm not going to get up until I have attained full enlightenment. (laughs) Imagine coming in here and, okay, this is it. (laughs) But what happens at a certain point? It just gets too uncomfortable, too painful. Okay, well, that's fine. We can be mindful in any posture. So then we get up and walk. So we relieve that discomfort. Well, why not just walk? Go on walking until we're fully enlightened. Well, at a certain point, we get tired. So then we have to either sit or lie down. (laughs) Why do we eat? To alleviate the, the discomfort of hunger. Why do we bathe? So much of what we do is a move to alleviate some kind of dukkha. You know, and so this is what's motivating us throughout the day. And it's not that these things are unwise to do, but we should see actually what's happening. At some point, I just got so fed up with this. I was in India in those years practicing. I was up in the mountains. Okay, I got this quite thick foam, like big foamy mattress. And I decided, I'm going to just lie down, lie on my back. Nothing is crossed, body fully supported. Okay, this is it. I'm going to get enlightened in this position. (laughs) All right, no discomfort, no dukkha, 
just supported on a bed of foam. Well, it didn't take that long, which even in this position, just by not moving, the body started to hurt. You know, the pressure and all the, all the familiar sensations. And I don't remember now how long I lay there, but it wasn't all day, you know. So we keep on moving to avoid the discomfort that's inherent. If we have a body, this is what's going to happen. So it's interesting to notice our fear of discomfort. You know, when it arises, what's the response in the mind? And we can often recognize that the fear is there in a sense of contraction, contraction in the body, you know, where we tense a little bit in the face of it, contraction in the mind. We don't want to be with it. So we often get into this place of enduring the discomfort or pain rather than opening to it. And that's largely the function of fear of it. This fear of anticipated pain. You know, we're, we may be feeling some discomfort in the moment, but it's workable, it's okay, but our mind then starts imagining, oh, it's okay now, but it's, it's getting pretty bad. <laughs> You know, and we start thinking, well, what is this going to be like in half an hour, or an hour, or in two hours? And so we build up in our minds what the pain is going to become, and then become afraid of that. You know, and we take various actions. In the moment, it's okay, but in our imagination, it's not, and we're afraid of it. I had a very striking experience of this. This goes back a lot of years to my time in India. You know, in the, in the summertime, the plains in Bodh Gaya gets very hot, to, you know, like 120 degrees. Or, so most of us, when we could, we went up to the mountains. So this one year, some friends and I went up uh, to Kashmir, which was then uh, quite accessible. But to get from the plains up, you know, to the high mountains, it was like a 17-hour Indian bus ride. And for those of you who've been there, you know, the Indian buses, they're crowded, really crowded and bumpy. And, and the seat I had it was a middle seat and it was over the crank case, you know, the engine crank case. So the fumes were coming up. And I got on this bus and I had 17 hours of this. It was like I, could, I just couldn't imagine it. So I said, okay, I'm going to be with my breath. I'm going to just stay on my breath and just keep all of this out. So that was my strategy. Well, it worked okay for, you know, an hour, an hour and a half, for two hours, but I was really, but it was exhausting, you know, to, to kind of keep my mind. So at a certain point, there was actually a little, it was kind of a mini Satori where I realized this is the wrong strategy, you know. And so I just relaxed. I just said, instead of trying to keep all the discomfort out, what if I let it in? So I just relaxed that holding of the mind. It just opened up, settled back, and it was very unpleasant. You know, the fumes and the, the discomfort. And the, but the ease of allowing it in made the unpleasantness fine. It really wasn't a problem. It was just what it was. And it was so interesting to me that it was the fear you know, of that anticipated pain or anticipated discomfort which had imprisoned me. And as soon as I could let go and just relax into what was happening in the moment, even though it was unpleasant, it was totally fine. We can also see how fear of discomfort or pain feeds our desires. And this is really interesting. Again, this goes back to an early retreat. I was actually sitting with Mahasi Sayadaw in England. And every morning we come down for breakfast, and it was the same breakfast every, every morning. 
And so the first morning came down for breakfast and you know, there was porridge and then two pieces of toast and some food and tea. So that's what I did. But when I was eating and finished, one piece of toast was enough. Second morning, come down, same exact breakfast, go through the line, took my porridge, two pieces of toast, fruit and tea. Second day, one piece of toast was enough. Third day, I come down, same breakfast, took my porridge, two pieces of toast, <laughs> fruit. I don't know how many days it took me, five days, six days. Joseph, you're not having that second piece of toast, you don't want it. I noticed in my mind, just going through this line, I mean, it's such, a, it's such a simple activity, just getting our breakfast. But how the fear of possibly being hungry was feeding this just-in-case mind. You know, I'll take the second piece of toast just in case I'm hungry. I could have just gotten up and gotten the second piece of toast after. But the fear was operative, even on this very somewhat trivial level, but it was interesting to see how it operates and how often our anticipated fear is just feeding our desire system. So be watchful for the just-in-case mind, whether it's in food or anything else. You know, working with physical pain and discomfort, as you know, you've been practicing now, you know, for so many weeks, Working with it and learning to be skillful can be such a powerful part of our practice. Our minds don't wander very much when there's you know, obvious pain or discomfort in the body. It's a very good object of concentration. And it brings us right to the edge of what we're comfortable with, what we can be with. That's where we want to be. You know, and so when we're at that edge, can we recognize that? Okay, can I settle? Relax. Can I open to this? Is this okay? And it's in this way that our mind expands. Our capacity to be with experience expands. As we practice opening to these uncomfortable or painful sensations, we can have a very direct, intimate experience of their selfless, changing nature. We see so clearly that these sensations that we're feeling are not subject to our will. I mean, can you come in and sit down? Okay, this sitting, no pain. No. All these sensations are arising according to their own causes and conditions. When those causes are there, the sensations, particular sensations arise. Conditions change. Sensations change. This is one of the meanings of anatta, of selflessness. It means the ungovernableness of phenomena. Things are following their own laws. So we see this very directly, very clearly, and it's a deepening of our understanding of selflessness. Now, practicing opening to these unpleasant aspects the physical sensation, is also a tremendous practice for being ill and dying. You know, in these situations, it might not be a question of simply being able to shift position and the discomfort's going to go away. We may very well be in a situation, either when we're, we're very sick or we're in the dying process, we're discomfort at the least, and maybe you know some strong pain, is actually just part of the process. How will we be with that? You know, will the mind have its conditioned reaction of fear and contraction, or through our practice now, you know, through our training now, can we learn, at least to some extent, to relax behind it? It's okay. We can feel it. You know, and not be so caught up or identified with the fear. It will be a tremendous help for us. Now, in the discourses, the suttas, the Buddha often would be speaking with people 
who were either very ill or who were dying. And there's one phrase <coughs> which he would often use in these conversations. He would say, even though there is affliction in the body, can the mind remain unafflicted? So that's something we should even consider as a possibility because I think most people, it's the Buddhist classic term, you know, unenlightened worldlings. <laughs> just most people in the world, you know, if the body is afflicted, just assume the mind will be afflicted. But to see that that's not necessarily the case, we can be with this affliction of the body and the mind remain totally at peace. There's one story of this. I I may have read this in part one. It's one of my favorite examples of this possibility. It's so inspiring to me. It describes the dying days of Henry David Thoreau, who, you know, is this great American naturalist and writer. But he died very young. He died at 44 of tuberculosis. And so very painful, painful disease. And this is somebody writing, who knew him then, and was writing of Thoreau's life and these dying days. Said, Henry was never affected, never reached by his illness. Very often I heard him tell his visitors that he enjoyed existence as well as ever. And this is somebody dying of tuberculosis. He enjoyed existence as well as ever. He remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health, the mind always conforming to the condition of the body. I find that remarkable. You know, that insight and that understanding that the nature of awareness can hold anything. The mind conforms, awareness (coughs) conforms to the condition of the body. There was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health. So, you know, can we even consider that possibility and begin to train in it? And we can do it, you know, right here on retreat, even with less intense, unpleasant sensation. But we hold that possibility. So as you know, with all of this, we need to start small, maybe just for short periods of time as painful, painful sensations come. Maybe not starting with the most painful, but we slowly expand our ability. This is the training of opening. And we begin to decondition the response of fear, which is contracts us and pulls us back from it. It is helpful in practicing this to learn to recognize different kinds of pain because different kinds of pain will require or suggest different responses. Sometimes pain is a danger signal. You know, if you have your hand in fire, (coughs) oh, burning, burning, (laughs) burning. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. (laughs) You know, that's not wisdom. (laughs) So we need to recognize when the pain, and and sometimes, you know, pain in the body is a dangerous signal. It's telling us something. So, for example, if you're sitting and, you know, there's pain in your knee, and you get up and it goes away, so that's fine no matter how intense it is. But if over the course of a day or over the course of several days you're sitting and it's just getting stronger and stronger and more intense, that may be saying something. I may be saying, okay, we're straining this too much. You know, need to sit in a different posture or change posture. So we want to be intelligent about this. But often in our practice, the discomfort we feel is simply the opening to the accumulated tensions of our lives. Mostly we live in such a distracted way that we're not feeling what we're carrying around. Come to a retreat where there's not a lot of distraction, we settle in, 
and we feel the tension that we've been holding, you know, maybe for years. And one of the things that, you know, we see happening is that simply through the process of awareness, when we can be with these discomforts without fear, with openness, there's actually an unwinding. We're unwinding a lot of the tensions that have been accumulated. And you may not have noticed this yet, but a very common experience on retreats, especially in long retreats like this, it's the best de-wrinkling cream. <laughs> I, mean, I, don't even know, I, I see it in my observation of others and I see it myself when I'm on retreat. It's like the face just, you know, it just softens so much and the tension that we hold in it usually, you know, it's so noticeable. Uh, and that's just indicative of even the deeper tensions that we hold in the body. The caution here, it's very easy as we begin to hold the feeling of discomfort in this, I think, very useful frame of this is an unwinding. So just holding it in that way really helps us relax behind it and allow it to happen. But we don't want to make that the aim of the practice because then that just becomes greed. You know, and so watch for that in order to mind. I'm with this in order for it to open. So this is a subtlety, but it's a very uh, seductive trap. Right? We can understand that there is this unwinding and still just be settled back letting it happen rather than practicing in order for it to happen. You know? And so this is something to watch for in the practice. How we relate to physical pain really can show, show us how we relate to other unpleasant experiences in our lives. You know, do we contract? Do we pull back? Are we afraid of the unpleasantness? Or are we learning to open to it, to be with it? It's okay to feel it. Fears might also arise, so this is the whole area of physical sensation, and there's a lot more that could be said about it, and you've, I'm sure, explored a lot of this dimension. Fears also arise in the context of certain memories or images arising in the mind. You know, might be specific events in the past that come to mind and we pull back from, they're really unpleasant. Sometimes there are archetypal images in the mind, like certain archetypal images of anger or hatred or you know, intense emotions that is not even a specific memory. It just it can be some very frightening images sometimes, and we pull back. But can we practice, whether it's specific memories or these more archetypal images, can we practice seeing them for what they are. You know, they're empty images in the moment. They have no power in themselves other than the power of our associations. But sometimes these associations run very deep. There can be at times powerful emotions connected with these images or memories that arise. So we need to proceed slowly, especially when there are powerful associations connected with the memories or the images. You know, opening to them gradually, slowly. If it feels overwhelming, just for, you know, a few minutes. Say, okay, can I be with this? and then pull back, go to something more neutral, to sound, to the, to the whole body. But if we can slowly learn to be with this material, 
it's tremendously healing. When we first started teaching in this country, this goes back to the 70s and the Vietnam War was still going on. One friend of ours in California, we were teaching up in the Redwoods, he had been a medic in Vietnam and had just experienced horrendous things in the war. And when he came back, he said that he was just having nightmares every night. You know, he was kind of reliving in his dreams kind of the horrors that he had been through. He came to this two-week retreat. And all of these images, you know, started uh, coming up to him. And they were very present for him and very immediate. But he's a pretty, (coughs) pretty... He had a pretty balanced mind and was able, uh, gradually, to learn just to be with the images as they came. So they would come, and you could imagine you know, the, the power and all the emotions associated with them. And he just was with them. He could open to them in a gradual way. And it was amazing. He said, after the two weeks, and then we saw him back in Berkeley, all the nightmares were gone. You know, because he, he processed all of that with awareness, with mindfulness. And that was really a relatively short time to do that in. Sometimes, sometimes the process is much longer. But it shows the healing power of awareness. You know, and if we can learn to do that in a way that's right for us at our own speed, you know, then it allows us to go beyond the fear of these images and these emotions. We just open to them. And they actually purify, our minds get purified of them. We sometimes have fear of feeling certain emotions, even when they're not traumatic. You know, they may just be part of the shadow side of our personality, of our minds. Feelings like unworthiness, or shame, or guilt, or failure, or even feelings of embarrassment, just these feelings that are unpleasant that we don't like to look at. And so when they come, we just back off. We're afraid of feeling them. Carl Jung, the famous Swiss psychologist, had very apt words about this. He said, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. The latter procedure, however, is disagreeable and therefore not popular. (laughs) It's not popular. People generally don't like to open to these unpleasant, painful mind states. The ordinary, the mundane ones, not the traumatic ones, just the ordinary stuff of our lives. And so out of fear of opening, of feeling them, we block them off, but then we're fragmenting our lives. We're cutting ourselves off from what's a part of this whole process. Now, how much do we do as individuals and as a culture <coughs> to avoid feeling lonely or sad or bored? Do you think 90% of our culture is about not feeling bored? <laughs> you know, I mean, it would be so much easier and less expensive <laughs> to just okay, be okay with that feeling. Because they're all just feelings that come and go. But we're afraid of feeling them you know, because they're unpleasant. And so it drives us to all kinds of actions. Now, how much of our attachment and clinging comes from our fear of feeling loss, which is inevitable. And yet our fear of it, and so it drives us to to cling and to be attached. You know, how averse are we to taking risks because of a fear of failure? 
You know, it's an unpleasant feeling. Nobody likes to feel failure. But it's also okay. It's just another passing feeling. And if we're afraid of that feeling, it keeps us you know, from taking risks, various kinds in our lives. So all of this doesn't mean that our meditation is not progressing if we're not diving into all these unpleasant emotions. It's not that we have to be looking for some great emotional catharsis. But rather, it's learning to see when we're at the edge, in terms of emotions, of our comfort zone, and seeing if we can relax and open to these feelings when they do arise. So this fear of pain, fear of certain memories and images that might come, and emotions associated with it, fear of more mundane, unpleasant emotions, just the shadow side you know, of our experience, the parts we don't like to look at. There are also deeply conditioned fears of impermanence, of change, of loss, and fear of death. And because of these fears, we hold on, we cling to different aspects of this mind-body process. You know, we create this sense, we create this concept of self in an effort to create some permanence, some stability. And so we don't recognize the moment-to-moment arising and dissolution of all experience, that whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Just that simple statement, you know, in the discourses, sometimes the Buddha or other of the great teachers would just say that sentence and people would get enlightened. So I'll say it again. (laughs) Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Just think of the implications of that. Because what has the nature to arise? Absolutely everything in our experience. Everything in our experience has the nature to arise. It will also pass away. That is its nature. Can we open to that? A lot of our practice is precisely about opening to the experience of this flow of change, to the momentariness of things. So we decondition the grasping and the clinging and the attachment. It's something to simply be aware of. As we're beginning to open to that, do we experience fear? You know, do we pull back? Are we trying to fix something? Or do we allow for the flow? Do we surrender into it? Not opening deeply to the truth of change is often felt and experienced as the fear of death. And this is common. Many people, you know, when they think about dying, it calls up some deep fears. You know, and in many circles, talking of death, I mean, can you imagine going out to dinner with your family after the retreat and okay folks (laughs) let's talk about your dying (laughs) you know be a pretty awakened family usually people shy away from acknowledging this or talking about this and yet the Buddha suggested that we reflect on this daily you know because it's so such an obvious truth such an obvious manifestation of change. It's not a mistake, and it's certainly not personal. One of the most uh, striking statements contained within the law of dependent origination, when the Buddha was describing his own process, you know, and he was kind of working backwards. Okay, so he saw that all beings would you know, die, and he said, well, what's the cause of death? And then it kind of worked back. 
Well, the cause of death is birth. And it's so obvious, but so overlooked. You know, it's like we don't quite get, oh yeah, if we're born, we're also going to die. And that this is just nature. This is not, it's not morbid and it's not a problem really. If we really understand the process and the naturalness of this process, but because fear can come up, you know, as we begin to see the truth of change and the truth that everything that arises will pass and whatever is born will die, if we get locked into the fear, then we pull back, we contract, we don't see it. And so we really close off to the possibility of living in a free way. This is again from Thoreau's death. During his long illness, I never heard a murmur escape him or the slightest wish expressed to remain with us. (laughs) His perfect contentment was truly wonderful. None of his friends seemed to realize how very ill he was, so full of life and good cheer did he seem. One friend, as if by way of consolation, said to him, Well, Mr. Thoreau, we must all go. Henry replied, when I was a little boy, I learned that I must die, which is quite extraordinary in itself. So of course I am not disappointed now. Death is as near to you as it is to me. Some of his more orthodox friends and relatives tried to prepare him for death, but with little satisfaction to themselves. When his Aunt Louisa asked him if he had made his peace with God, he answered, I did not know we had ever quarreled, Aunt. Quite an amazing understanding. So we can come to that same place of understanding. You know, if we recognize the fear that may arise and then learn to work with it. You know, when we work with the fear, then we can settle back into the truth, the very obvious truth of change. Sometimes our fear is of things not changing. You know, we might become aware of certain unwholesome patterns or habits in ourselves, certain unwholesome behaviors or personality attributes, and we think they will always be there. I'm just like this. The whole universe changes, but not this. (laughs) And how often do we get caught up in that kind of attachment and delusion? So we've talked of things that often condition fear to arise. You know, it can be painful sensations in the body. It can be painful memories, you know, or emotions, either strongly traumatic ones or just more ordinary ones, but ones that are unpleasant. Fear of change, fear of the unknown, fear of death. So the question then is, fears are going to arise at the edges of what's comfortable for us. This is the practice, and we want to be at those edges. This is not a problem. This is precisely where we want to be, because that's where we can open, and that's where we can learn to understand fear. We can look at the nature of fear itself. So the first step, is to become aware of it. We want to become aware of the fear as it arises. But here it's important to distinguish some different components of what awareness means. So one component is recognition. We want to recognize, oh yeah, fear is here. But recognition is not mindfulness. Recognition is actually the factor of perception. You know, we recognize the emotion of fear, but we could be recognizing it with resistance. We could be recognizing it not liking it. We could be recognizing it pushing it away. <clears throat> so we know it's there, but it's not necessarily being mindful of it. Well, mindfulness is another component of this awareness. 
Mindfulness means we're recognizing it and we're coming to a place of acceptance of it. It's unpleasant. Fear is... It's analogous to a painful sensation in the body. Fear is not a pleasant emotion. It's unpleasant. But just as with pain, we can learn to be with the unpleasantness of it. It's okay. And an image which might help guide the mind to this place of acceptance of the fear itself is imagine being with a frightened child. You know, how would you be? You would probably be present. You would probably be caring. You know, not feeding the fear, not telling the kid, yeah, you really should be afraid. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) And if, you know, there's some wisdom, you also wouldn't be denying it. Oh, you're not really feeling it, which sometimes happens. You know, not making demands on it not condemning it, there would just be a loving acceptance, you know, of being with the kid in a loving way, helping, helping the child to hold it. It's okay. It's okay to feel this. What's so interesting is that it's not hard to imagine us being that way with a child who is frightened. I think we can all imagine responding in that way. But for some reason, we have a very hard time responding to the fear when it arises in ourself. But it's exactly the same attitude that's needed. And so it's just worth looking at. As the fear arises, we recognize it. Can we drop into that place of real mindful acceptance, that loving acceptance? Okay, it's okay to feel this. So this is essential. But it's also interesting to note that we can be mindful and accepting without wisdom. So wisdom is the third component. And wisdom is the understanding which comes out of mindfulness. It comes out of the acceptance. The wisdom is the understanding that this fear, this emotion, this mind state is also impermanent, is also not self. And so it's in the wisdom that we no longer identify with it. So these three aspects can be brought to bear when we're at the edges of what's comfortable and we see fear arising. We can recognize it. We can become mindful and accepting, really accepting. It's okay to feel it. And then understand that with wisdom. So this becomes a powerful way of deconditioning the power of fear. One way of working with these three aspects, the recognition, the really loving acceptance, and the wisdom, we can begin to unpack the experience. Fear is not just one thing. You know, we experience fear as particular sensations in the body. We experience fear as perhaps thoughts in the mind, a certain feeling tone in the mind. And so just to investigate in that way each of its components helps us to, helps us to relate to it in a more skillful way. When we experience and investigate the nature of fear itself, we begin to understand that it is another conditioned arising appearance in the mind. Now it's like it's like a big cloud formation in the sky. And maybe the cloud is you know, dark and threatening and has all these manifestation, but it's still, it's just an arising in the sky, conditions coming together, conditions change, the cloud disappears. 
can we understand fear and all the other emotions you know, that are arising in just the same way. It's just a mind state. That's all it is. But what happens is, and very often with fear, we build a whole big superstructure of self on top of this emotion, you know, this arising appearance, arising due to conditions, we just build this, we construct this skyscraper of self, you know, identifying with the fear, I'm afraid, this is my fear, I'm a fearful person, you know, we're just solidifying the whole thing. I've worked with fear a lot in my practice. That was, that was the primary difficult emotion. And there were times when it was so intense and primal. You know, I was afraid to go from sitting to standing. It was just completely irrational, but that fearful energy was just so strong. And so working with it for a long time in my practice, and I just started creating this whole self-image of being this fearful person. And, you know, this is going to take 30 years of therapy to unwind and just going on and on. And I was feeling more and more contracted in it. And one time I was just walking, I was teaching with Sharon Salzberg. It was in Texas. And we were just going for a walk after lunch and I was going on and on about my fear. And, was, you know. and she just turned to me and she said, Joseph, it's just a mind state. <laughs> something I had said to people a thousand times. But you know, this sometimes when you just hear it at the right moment, and it was amazing because just in that, yeah, it's just a mind state, that's all it is. So we want to keep working with understanding the nature of fear you know, and seeing how we do identify and solidify it, and then coming back when we can to see its empty, insubstantial nature. The Dalai Lama had some very pragmatic advice. He said, how can we work with deep... Somebody asked him, how can we work with deep fears? This is what he said. If you have some fear of pain or suffering, you should examine whether there is anything you can do about it. If you can, there is no need to worry about it. If you cannot do anything, then there is also no need to worry. You know, sometimes we shy away from our fears because of the feeling at those times of vulnerability. You know, and it's a very, it's a very delicate time. But these times when we're most open and most vulnerable can also be the time where there's the deepest connection to other people, to what's going on. And I had a a very powerful experience of this. This goes back to the 70s, when we first actually started IMS. At that time, uh, some of us started uh, sitting a couple of sessions with Suzaki Roshi, who, like Saida Upandita, he's a very fierce Zen master. You know, and, and the whole session, as you might know in Zen, it's set up just to, to heighten the pressure. You know, and you go see, it, he uses the koan method. So you've got these koans, you know, and you have to go see him four times a day. And so it's just building, building, building. So I'm sitting with session. I, don't, I really didn't have any experience of Zen practice. And I'd go in, I'd do my bows. I would you know, give him the answer to my koan. And mostly he would just say, oh, very stupid. <laughs> I mean, it was one variation or another of that for most of the week. So at, by the, I don't know, by the fifth day or so, I think he felt a little sorry for me. So he gave me an easier koan. 
<laughs> kind of back me up. Reme- remedial Zen practice. <laughs> so the koan he gave me was, how do you manifest Buddha while chanting a sutra? So that seemed fairly obvious, just go in and you know, chant a little bit of a sutra when we were doing chanting every day you know, together in the hall. But little did he know, I don't think he knew, that just triggered this deep, deep reaction in me, going back to my third grade music teacher who said, Joseph, just mouth the words. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was this deep-seated inhibition, you know, and in that charged situation, you know, where already there was just a lot of tension and pressure. So I'm, I'm sitting in the hall just rehearsing, you know, to these two lines of chant, you know, that I was going to do and manifest my Buddha nature. <laughs> <laughs> so the bell rings, I mean, a lot of fear, you know, was coming up. So the bell rings and I, the last one in, <laughs> you know, I go in, I do my bows, I start chanting. I, I just totally screwed up. You know, I got the chant all wrong, the melody was all wrong, and I felt completely exposed and completely raw and naked. It just, it just felt, it was, a, it was a terrible feeling, you know, of vulnerability. And he just looked at me and he said, oh, very good. <laughs> You know, it was amazing. I mean, it was an amazing moment. I said, I can still feel an emotional response now, 30 years later. You know, because I was so open, you know, and so vulnerable, just that expression of metta. I mean, it was really, it just touched my heart so deeply in a way that it would never have been touched if I weren't in that space. So there's a great value, even though it's unpleasant and it's hard and it's difficult, we also want to appreciate the power of what's possible in that vulnerability. You know, we can really see so many things and feel so many things and be connected in such deep ways in those moments. So when we come to these edges, to these boundaries, it's a place of practice. You know, and it has such tremendous uh, potential for us in our understanding. So I think I'd just like to close with, it's a poem by Galway Canal, who's a wonderful poet, and the name of the poem is St. Francis and the Sow. And this is just one stanza of it. It says, the bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. Just that line. Sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. We need to reteach ourselves. To put a hand on its brow of the flower and to retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers from within of self blessing. And so this is our practice. And as we work with fear and learning to see what it is we're afraid of, to play at the edge to open in that place of vulnerability, to see into the nature of fear itself, and to be okay with feeling it. It's we're retelling ourselves, we're reteaching ourselves loveliness until it flowers from within of self-blessing. Let's just sit for a moment or two.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.